Welcome back, everybody. This is week 45 of Creative Come Follow Me for the Old Testament. And this week, we get to enjoy the book of Daniel. And trust me, you're going to enjoy it. <laughs> we have six chapters. It's not that hard to cover. It's also a lot of familiar stories. So if your kids have been missing the story component of the Old Testament, Daniel's going to bring it back strong. These are going to be familiar to you, but I promise you that as you dive a little bit deeper, you're going to find hidden treasures that you didn't even know were there. That's what my week has been filled with, and I just can't wait to teach you the book of Daniel. Here are a few things that you'll want to know as you head in. So Daniel is in part of that initial exile into Babylon. So that the siege of Jerusalem actually covers about 20 years of time. And so when Babylon captures Jerusalem, they take people away in waves. Daniel's in that very first wave. At least we think that um, what the king does is he wants to kind of pillage those who can contribute to Babylonian society. So Daniel is likely somewhere in a noble family, at least that's what the Bible dictionary teaches, that he's from some kind of nobility, and he's incredibly bright and talented. And he and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are their Babylonian names. You're going to learn about that in a minute, but they all get carried off and go into Babylon. What's powerful to me about their story is that they teach you how to live in the world, but not become a part of the world. And after hearing President Nelson talk to us at conference about this idea of us choosing to overcome the world and giving us tips on how we can accomplish that and why it's worth our time. I feel like Daniel's message is that. He basically teaches you how to be yourself in a world full of other opinions and people pressuring you to assimilate and all kinds of things. He also teaches you how to do it with dignity and grace and compassion. He's He's not brash and in your face. In fact, he really reminded me of Joseph in Egypt. So if you loved reading Joseph's story and how he found ways to be successful, no matter if he was in Potiphar's house or in a prison or right up next to Pharaoh, Daniel has that same kind of feel. He'll serve several kings in Babylon. In fact, I don't know that we, as far as I can tell, he never gets back to Jerusalem. He will spend his whole life serving various kings who are in power there. And he does incredible work. In fact, one of my favorite lines from President Nelson's talk is that he talks about how this quest to overcome the world is a lifetime challenge. And that's what you get to read this week. You guys, we're going to see Daniel's lifetime pass before our eyes, and you'll see how he chooses to overcome the world at every turn. Not just Daniel, but his friends as well. And it is so good. So I promise you're going to love it. Grab your scriptures, grab your notes, and let's get started. In pretty much every chapter of the six that we're reading this week, there is an experiment upon the word. You know, like Alma taught us back in Alma 32, that if you plant a good seed, you yield good fruit. And if you plant a bad seed, it won't, and you can cast it out. And each chapter hits this a little bit differently. Chapter one is focused on these boys being brought up in the court of the king. Basically, they have three years to be raised and taught in the court, and then they'll be eventually presented before the king. And in that interim, they're supposed to assimilate. You're going to see that in the verses. So if you're looking for, you see these were children of no blemish that are well-favored and skillful, and that they might teach them, this is the end of verse 4, they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. The goal here is that these kids will become Babylonians, basically, that they'll learn the traditions, they'll learn the ways. I think a piece of that will be because they want the other Jews to see these nobles assimilate and then be easier to manage. I think there's something about if you can get the elite to, 
you know, to join your ways, then things are easier. So one of the first things that happens is in verse seven, it says that they're given new names. So they're changed from their Hebrew names to these Babylonian names. Interestingly, Daniel's name stays Daniel. That's his Hebrew name. And that's how we'll know him the whole time throughout these chapters. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are their Babylonian names. And somehow we, we know those ones instead. But it was the idea of changing their names that actually jumped out at me. I think the reason is because of that single adult fireside that I told you guys about, the, I guess, young adult fireside, where President Nelson talked to those young adults and he said, don't let any label of the world supersede the three most important labels. And that is you are a child of God, a child of the covenant, and a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's, I think, what they're trying to do here subtly. By giving them Babylonian names, they're helping them forget, or maybe hoping that they'll forget who they are and whose they are. And it's just this slow process of hoping to change them. What's so cool about these boys is they don't change, but they seem to know when to push boundaries and when to not. They don't seem to resist having their names changed, but they do resist the diet that comes their way. So if you go a couple verses down, you see that they're basically invited or encouraged to eat the king's meat and drink the king's wine. But I love how it's phrased in verse 8. It says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. He didn't make a big stand. He didn't, you know, tip the plates over and throw everything on the floor. He seems to show respect and temperance and, and ask to abstain. I really think there is a key in this for us. Specifically, you have to learn or you have to remember that how old these kids are. If they're in their, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 range, for them to be able to withhold from the king's meat is pretty impressive. <laughs> you know, we're at that time where your kids probably have a whole stash of Halloween candy that they have poured through and they've eaten pounds more than they should have. That's the same age that Daniel and his friends are. And they have been taught well enough or feel the spirit about this strongly enough that they choose to abstain. And I think that's pretty remarkable, but I love the way they go about it. There is a, there is a patience in their approach that I think is pretty remarkable. And you learn how it works for them in the next verse. So when you go into nine, it says, now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. So the man who's in charge of them Kind of like the situation we saw with Esther, where she won the hearts of other people at court and therefore was trusted. That's what's happening with Daniel. Same thing we saw happen with Joseph. What I love about this is I feel like this is the promise that if you choose to honor God first, if you choose to love God, He will teach you how to love others, how to love your fellow men, how to love your neighbor. He will also help those fellow men and neighbors love you and see the goodness in you. That, I think, is a remarkable promise, and you see it fulfilled in Daniel. He goes a little further, and you see this test, right? The one that you've read about all your life. This is where they basically come to that, that guy who's over them, and they say, give us 10 days. We just want to eat the foods that are... It, it doesn't specifically say that those foods, the wine and the meat, are outside of the law of Moses. In fact, we know that within the law of Moses, you can eat meat and you can drink wine. So this is kind of an odd... We don't know exactly. It's possible that these things, the specific meats they were re referencing are against that, that law. But it's also possible that they just wanted to be distinct and different. That they were seeking a way to say to each other and maybe to those around them, we are still set apart. We're going to live in Babylon, but we're going to be ourselves. I think this is what 
what they're trying to teach with the strength of the youth lately. That the idea is that you're going to create boundaries, not because there's a checklist for you to follow, but because you've made a covenant with God that you will be distinct and different in happy ways. You will stand out when the time is right. And I feel like that might be what's happening here. It may not be against their code. It might just be a choice they make. There's a great story in the notes if you go in. I think it was, oh, I can't remember who said it. It's in the notes, but it's one of the apostles. And he talked about how he ran into problems in business meetings because they would have these cocktail hours. So for a lot of times he wouldn't go. And then his boss said, no, you're missing key business opportunities. You need to go to the cocktail hours. Just don't drink the alcohol. And so he chose to instead go and drink the Sprite. But he said it looked so much like the other alcoholic beverages that he felt like he was sending the wrong signal. So he went and spoke to the bartender and got a glass of milk. And, and he was very distinct and different. And he talked how at first he got a lot of jeering and was kind of teased. And then over the course of time, because he was distinct and different, he made business relationships that would have passed him by if he just blended into the crowd. That's what you're going to see with Daniel, where his uniqueness and his choice to be have integrity blesses him and blesses others around him. It's so good, you guys. So watch for it as you study this week. Basically what happens is that the they, they ask to put this to the test. They say, let us eat our own food for 10 days and then just look at our countenance and see. And at the end of 10 days, their countenance was fair and they were fatter. You know, I don't think it means physically fatter, but they looked healthier than the others. What I thought was really powerful is that's what the world can see. That's what this prince of the eunuchs can see. It'll be what the king can see, their countenance, their overall physical look. What they can't see is what, what they were blessed with also. That's in verse 17. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. That's the blessing of keeping the standards of God. It's not just about our health it's not just about how we look on the outside, those standards in for the strength of the youth and the word of wisdom and all those physical commandments that we, we think about, they don't just yield physical blessings. They, they yield deeper spiritual gifts that we will need. Daniel will interpret dreams that will save people's lives. Their ability to learn fast will help them stand out above all the other kids in this program. They are blessed with the skills they need to accomplish the work God has for them. And they needed to step up to a standard in order to accomplish that. I just think sometimes we teach this like a word of wisdom story, and it is, but it's also so much more. The same way you can teach for the strength of the youth and talk about how it helps you be safe and it helps you be healthy. And you could talk about it like that, or you can take it deeper and say, God will always love you. He wants to love and bless you, not just physically, but with the gifts and the talents and the abilities you need to withstand the Babylon you live in. And the way to get those blessings is to choose this higher standard. Whether the world sets it for you or the church sets it for you, live higher and then watch the blessings roll in. By the end of this chapter, you see they get to the end of those three years, they stand before the king and he can see that they are 10 times better than anybody else. And that sets the stage for what we're going to see in chapter two. You're going to get total Joseph vibes when you read chapter two, because this is when King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that troubles him, and he turns to his wise men to try and get an interpretation of the dream, and of course, none of them can do it. But thankfully, we have someone who lived a higher standard and received the spiritual gift of interpreting dreams, and now that comes into play. So you see it kind of pull through in chapter two. This is when you learn about his dream. But what's interesting is he doesn't tell you what his dream is, and he doesn't tell the wise men either. So he basically puts out a challenge to the wise men in his 
rule and says, not only do I want you to interpret the dream, I want you to tell me what the dream was. This is where you want to watch the footnotes because it gets a little confusing. But essentially what you've learned is that the king remembers his dream. He knows what it is. He wants to put his magicians and wise men and sorcerers to the test. This is another experiment upon the word, but this time it's a bad seed. These magicians don't have the skills, they don't have the ability or the connection to revelation to give the dream. In fact, that's what they say to the king. They say in verse 10, there is not a man on the earth that can show the king this matter. They are willing to interpret the dream, but they cannot read the king's mind to know what the dream was. That's the king putting them to the test, and that seed doesn't grow. And so all of a sudden, he's skeptical, right? So he turns to another source, but there has to be something that happens in the middle. Basically, what happens is he says, if you guys can't interpret dreams, because their answer comes in 11, where they say, only the gods could read your mind and tell you what it means, and the gods don't deal with men of the flesh. So essentially what they're saying to the king is, we know we're supposed to be your channel to talk to the gods, but the gods don't actually talk to us, which makes them completely useless to the king. And you can tell that because he sends out a decree in the next verse that all of them are going to die. Now, since all of the wise men in this gigantic kingdom are going to die, Daniel and his friends are included in that mix. So when he hears about that happening, he's concerned. <laughs> but here's what I love about Daniel. He has temperance, right? So if you look, when the decree goes out in verse 13, in 14, then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to the captain of the king's garden that was gone forth to slay. So this is, they're about to kill all these wise men. And he steps forth in counsel and wisdom. Aren't those interesting word choices? I just feel like that means he probably talked to his friends. He probably took counsel from those who were similarly minded, who have also have gifts that the Lord has given them. And then they respond in wisdom. The way they respond is to ask more questions. So I think this is a key way for us to live in Babylon and not become like Babylon. We have to not get easily shocked. <laughs> we have to show patience, but we also have to act. And the way he acts is to say, I need more information. I'm not understanding. Help me understand why the king feels this way. So that's what happens in 15. He wants to know why is the king in such a hurry? to, you know, execute everyone. And then he learns what happened. And so he basically says to the king, could you give me more time? Can you give me some time to think about this? And then they powwow together. So in 17, Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to his companions. So these are those three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They list their Hebrew names in that verse. But he turns to them and he asks them to counsel together. It feels like Esther, when she's fasting with her maidens before they before she can go into the king, they come together. I loved studying this concept because I think there is not just power in a group prayer like this, but there is joy in unity. And there's a great talk from Elder Iron all about this in the notes, but this idea that Heavenly Father often creates opportunities for us to be unified so that we can experience deeper joys together. And that's what you're going to see with these friends. So if you look in 18, they pray for tender mercies um, of God. And then within one verse, they get it. Now, I don't know how many hours pass between when they're praying for these mercies to come and when the answer comes. But the answer comes to Daniel because he's been given this spiritual gift of interpreting dreams. So it says in 19, then the secret was revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. So after they've come together, after they've prayed and counseled, then the answer comes. Isn't that helpful? <laughs> I think sometimes we think, oh, he's a prophet and he's going to know things automatically. And I think it takes counsel and it takes time and it takes prayer and fasting the same way it does for us, no matter who they are. So you see that process play out for Daniel. 
And then it says that he thanks God. I love that to get the answer is one verse. To thank God for giving him the answer is like six verses. He's so grateful for the wisdom and the might. He continually talks about how it's God's wisdom and God's might that has been shared with him. I love how it's phrased in at the end of 22. It says, well, let me read the whole verse. He says, He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. I especially love, if you go in the notes, there's a lot of links to the Doctrine and Covenants where you learn about God being the Father of light and how He wants to give us more and more light, and it grows brighter and brighter. That's what's happening to Daniel and his friends. Keeping the standards give them an opportunity to receive more light, using it the way that God wants them to, using their spiritual gifts to bless others, increases that light. And that's what you'll see over the course of the chapter. So he has the interpretation of the dream. He turns to the guy who's over them and he says, I, I can do this. Can I get before the king? What I love is what he says to him. In, at the end of 24, he asks, destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Daniel's not just looking out for himself and his friends. He's going to save the lives of all those sorcerers and magicians and people who have nothing in common with him, who are even working against him in future chapters. Uh, but he saves their lives anyway. I think he's a type of Christ in a lot of ways, and this is a big one. Um, so he gets before the king, and the king in 26 says, are you able, basically? What you have to love is how Daniel replies. Because even though the king said, can you do this? What Daniel replies over and over again is, it's not me. Yes, I can, but it's not me. So he says, but there is a God in heaven that revealeth these secrets and making them known. And then in 30, but as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom. It's not that I have any special talents or gifts. It's revealed through me so that you can know, King, what God wants you to know. And then he interprets the dream. And this is where you've you've probably seen the statue that has different kinds of metals. There are super expensive metals like gold at the very top, and then it goes slowly down to different kinds of metals on this great big warrior statue. And by the time you get to his feet, it's this compilation of clay and iron. And the prophets have already kind of laid this out in the Institute Manual. You can read some quotes, but they talk about how this is basically seeing history in the future, <laughs> like he's seeing our history laid out ahead of him and the different reigns. So this is the Babylonian reign. And then as you go down to the silver of his arms and his shoulders and his breast, that's supposed to be the next reign that will be the Persians. And you can go in the notes and learn the whole thing. But he's basically talking about how there will be these great kingdoms of the world, this, these world powers that will dominate things. And then slowly that will break down into smaller powers. And then eventually the kingdom of God will roll forth. That's where you learn about the stone. Oh, you guys, I did an object lesson about this because I just love these verses. But it's in 34. He says, Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image. So this stone comes out of the mountain without any help from men and rolls forth and it tumbles into this statue, breaks it to pieces, not just breaks it, but like crumbles it to dust. It compares it to like a threshing floor where all the seeds scatter in the wind. It's that same idea that it's going to, it's going to break it all apart. What I thought was really cool is the way he phrases it at the end of 35. It says, and that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is a phrase that Joseph Smith teaches in the Doctrine and Covenants as well. And he talked about how this isn't a stone that's going to snowball. It's not that kind of stone. It's something that will begin in a small radius. He compares it to like a millstone, I think. Um, and it's, oh no, it's a, a grinding stone, but it's this circular kind of donut stone. And he says, it's going to start small. And then as it spins, it's going to get wider and wider and pretty soon it will fill the whole earth. And I don't think this is just a 
you know, kind of military-like kingdom. I think this is the hearts of the people. When he describes this stone rolling forth and covering the kingdom, it is the hearts that are now united. I mean, think how many different countries have so many different governments, and yet all of these saints that live in these countries, we all unite under this kingdom of God. Even before the Savior is here, right, we are coming together as a kingdom of God rolling forth. So that's the image that he teaches the king. He tells him that what the dream was, what the dream meant, and then the king honors him because he can see that he is someone who has access to the actual living God. And that's a pretty powerful promise. So as you can see, if you go in the verses a little bit further, as he interprets it, the king worships. He worships Daniel. He honors him. It's kind of tricky this week because the king oftentimes will praise God. And then one chapter later, he is not praising God and he's worshiping other things and building giant statues. So you sort of have to keep that in check. You, you want to believe that this is going to be one of those Book of Mormon King Lamoni and King Lamoni's dad conversion stories, but it's not. It's a heart that flip-flops. It's almost like this king is the same kind of man who has an opportunity to give away all his riches and come to know God, and he just never quite gets there. But you're going to see him change. I think it's, it's powerful. It teaches you about the strength of Daniel and his friends, that even though this king never fully converts to the gospel of Jesus Christ, he does change at pivotal moments. And I think that's, that says something about the missionary work that they're doing. I don't think we have to have full conversions in order to have our missionary efforts matter. That This matters significantly, even though this king's heart never fully changes. But that'll kind of become more clear as you jump into chapter 3. As a result of Daniel's ability to interpret the dream, all four of them are promoted to positions of power, not necessarily in the greater kingdom, but at least over all those wise men and sorcerers and advisors to the king. And this is a really big province. In the notes, I give you a link to a map so you can see how big Babylon's empire is. So it's, a, it's an important position of power. And that creates envy really quickly in those, especially those other wise men and counselors. They want to get these Jews out and they can't find any fault in them personally, much like you see with the scribes and Pharisees trying to deal with the Savior. So they try and get at them via religion. And chapter three is a really famous story about that. This is where they make a gigantic statue. So King Nebuchadnezzar makes a huge, I mean, we're talking 90 feet tall, nine feet thick, huge, at least gold plated statue. And they set up this plan that there's going to be music that plays and everybody's going to need to bow down and worship. And this creates a similar problem to what we saw in chapter one, where they've made covenants with God that they will only worship one God. And so they choose not to bow down. And that's where the trap happens. Because the consequence is you're going to get thrown in a fiery furnace if you don't bow down. And interestingly, everybody's gathered. So all the kings are all the kings like, you know, second in command guys and all the members of the royal household and everybody is there and they've all been gathered and there's this social pressure to bow. And what's interesting is how these three get singled out. Basically, those who are envious of their positions say to the king, hey, did you notice who didn't bow? It's these certain Jews. So if you look in verse 12, it says, there are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. They give their names and then they say, oh, king, they have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods. They're trying to call attention to their distinct and differentness and get them in trouble so they get thrown in the furnace. And it's really fascinating to me that they call them certain Jews. Because I guess I wonder if maybe there are lots of other Jews who did bow just because of all the social pressure and they don't want to cause waves and they don't want to, 
you know, they just want to let things roll. And I think there's a lot of pressure for us today in that same, same vein, where I feel like, not just in social media, but in the world at large, where I'm supposed to bow or just kind of take on, I'm supposed to assimilate into the world and just take on their viewpoints on family and marriage and lots of areas where I feel like I'm being pushed to believe certain things or at least to vocalize certain things. And that's why I love this phrase, there are certain Jews who aren't. Because no matter how many of their own faith choose to bow down, these certain Jews choose not to. They choose to love God first, even at their own peril. And that's inspiring to me. I think it's what the prophets are asking us to do in all their talks lately. They're asking you to First of all, be certain. Do you remember that talk? I can't, is it Linda Burton? The one about certain women in the New Testament? I feel like you can apply those same principles here, that this isn't just certain Jews, meaning there are certain ones. I think you can also read it to mean they are certain. They have, they have become centered in who they are and what they know, and they can then stand. In fact, I think if we want our kids to be able to stand like these three, they need to have a sense of certainty about their testimony. It's why President Nelson in the last conference invited us to take hold of our testimony, to take ownership of it. That's powerful doctrine because it allows you to be certain in these key moments. There's a great talk from, it's a BYU devotional from President Worthen where he talks about holy places. And he says, he talks about that scripture that says, you know, stand in holy places and be not moved. And then when you choose in moments like this, to stand for God, you make the space you're in holy ground. So you make holy places. We often think of holy places as like, you know, being in the temple or being maybe in our home or, but you can make any place a holy place if you choose to stand for what God would want you to do. So that's what they're making, this pocket of a holy place. And remember, there are tons and tons of people and leadership who are watching their every move. You see this with our general authorities all the time. They're in a spot where they are going to get all kinds of pressure to assimilate and be like others, and they choose to make the ground they stand holy. And you'll see how this plays out as you go to the next page. So basically, the king comes to them, because now he's alerted to these three guys who aren't bowing down, and he doesn't immediately throw them into the furnace. He gives them another chance, which tells you probably a little bit about their relationship, that the king may not want to lose these very integrity-rich, good leaders. <laughs> so he gives them another chance and says, do you realize what the consequences are? And then they do this fascinating thing. First in 16, they say, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Meaning, I'm not going to be delicate with your feelings right now. I'm not worried about saying the wrong thing. I'm going to tell you exactly what I believe. Isn't that remarkable? I think sometimes when I try to stand up for what I believe, I hedge a little bit and I try to like gauge their responses and cushion my words. And what they're saying is in these pivotal moments where you can create a holy space, you just speak. In fact, the Doctrine and Covenants teaches that you'll be given the words you need in those moments if you choose to speak what God wants you to say. So that's what they say. We're not going to be careful with our words. Let me tell you what we believe. And then 17 and 18 are what they believe. What they say is, if it be so, our God will deliver us. If we are going to get cast into that furnace, our God can deliver us. He doesn't say they, he will deliver them. He says they, he can deliver them. That's really important because he says, if he chooses to, he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. And then 18, but if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods. That is an incredible statement of faith. That no matter what comes, whether they are in an Abinadi type moment where they are in the heat and the flames and they, their life is over, they will stand with God. They 
know He can deliver, and they also know that sometimes God chooses not to, and that His purposes and His designs are so much grander than we can picture, and so we just trust. In fact, there's some incredible quotes in the notes about this, but I really love how this ties into Elder Bednar's talk about choosing not to be healed. Do you have the faith to be healed and the faith not to be healed? If you haven't read that talk lately, it's so good, you guys. It helped me in some really pivotal moments with Jason's disease. And I feel like that's what they're inviting us to do. It's this invitation to weigh your integrity and say, no matter how the chips fall, this is where I stand. Um, And it doesn't go well for them. And we'll see that as we go into the next half of this chapter. I think what's most powerful about their decision to say clearly to the king, he can deliver us, but if not, is that they've taken all power and fear out of the situation. They've left everything up to God, which makes the king not be able to wield power over them. The king's power comes in them being afraid of death. If they're not afraid of death, then what what do they have to worry about what the king thinks or what the king will do? So the king feels that lack of power and he's not happy about it. So he has them increase the temperature of the furnace. It says seven times, which usually in the Old Testament means perfect or full. So this is like cranking the furnace up to full capacity. Um, it's so hot that the people who carry these bound men up to the furnace die in the process. But I think it's really powerful to see what happens next. So the death of those men come in 22. And then in 23, it says, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound, into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Midst means middle. It doesn't just mean in the area of. So in my mind, when I read this verse, I don't think this is them kind of tumbling in because the other guys died. I think this is they walked in and then they knelt down. So many times in scripture, we read about people falling down in prayer and adoration. And I could be wrong. This is just my opinion. But it also, it reminded me so much of that verse in the Book of Mormon, when the Nephites are about to fight the Lamanites and they're so outnumbered uh, that when they get to that front line, they bow. And the Lamanites are charging forward thinking that they're going to be weak and submissive and you know they see them bow down and think oh good the battle's almost over and then right as the Lamanites get close they rise and battle and like fight like lions that's that's what this reminds me of this is they kneel and they are loose it's so cool so if you go further in the verses the king sees them in there and he says didn't we cast three people in and his servant says yes we cast three people in and then in 25 he answered and said lo I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they have no hurt and the form of the fourth is like the son of god that's the king speaking he sees four men in the fire it doesn't just see four men he sees them walking around loose oh you guys this image is so powerful in my mind because oftentimes i think in our hottest fires of affliction God creates a way for us to walk around loose. I only know this from my own personal experience, and you'll have your own, but in some of the most intense, hard times during our cancer battles, it sure seems like we should be crumbling. In fact, people will often come to us and say, you don't always have to put on a good face. You don't always have to be smiling. You know, And we're not always, for sure. But there are times when I know we should be crumbling based on the outside fire that is around us. And yet we feel like we're walking around loose, that there is someone with us carrying us to make the burdens we're carrying lighter. I don't know how to explain it. I can't, I can't help others who see me understand it. I just feel it. And I just get to testify of it, that 
there will be times in your hottest fires when you kneel down and you pray for guidance and you pray for help and he will find a way not to take you out of the fire, but to find a way to help you walk around loose. And generally, I think it comes because there are ministering angels who lift us, people that we don't even see. I sometimes wonder how much they understood or saw within the fire that that the king could see from the outside. But when they emerge, because he calls them out, when they emerge, they say that there was an angel that came. Because that's what happens in 28. He says, he has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him. I love the phrase you see in 28. This is the king speaking. And he says, they have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. That phrase, they yielded their bodies, I think is what for the strength of youth and the word of wisdom and even our covenants that we make in the temple is when we yield over the natural man and all those tendencies, we gain power. We gain strength beyond physical, beyond mortal strength even. And the king, who's an outsider, can see that coming to be. So he makes a decree. And yet again, he, you know, praises their God. He doesn't fully convert, but he praises that their God and makes way for them to not be afraid because he puts out a decree that says there's no other God can deliver that can deliver people like this God did. And then he promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that's going to be important for what comes next in chapter four. We have another dream that pops up in chapter four. This is a different one. So Nebuchadnezzar again has a dream and again seeks for interpretation of the dream. This is a dream about a great big tree, a healthy, thriving tree that produces fruit and then gets chopped down by some angelic type of creature and it gets decimated, right? The fruit gets scattered, everything gets broken down, and then the root structure is left, and there's a curse of madness that is kind of hinted at in the dream, and he doesn't know what it means. So, of course, he turns to every other source, the same way he did before. This is the king who never quite commits to this God. Uh, it, it reminded me a little bit of Elder Holland's talk from last October, where he said, like, there's no halfway measures in the gospel. You can't be halfway in. You have to be all in, and this king never quite gets there. But he at the very last resort, turns to Daniel. And it's interesting to me because Daniel's the one who figured out his dream the first time really clearly, and he promoted him for it. So it makes you wonder why he wouldn't turn to him first. And then I had this humbling moment from the Spirit where <laughs> there's been lots of times when I receive an answer to a prayer, you know, like going into my personal scripture study, my family scripture study, going to the temple. And then I don't always turn to those sources. <laughs> when I need help with something, I sometimes will turn to friends or social media or all kinds of things. And I just was like reprimanded a little like, oh, you're not too far off <laughs> this situation. So I think, at least for me, oftentimes when I am in this spot where I'm seeking advice from any other source except God, it's because I know what God's answer is going to be and I don't want it. <laughs> and, and I think that might be what happens with the king. I think he knows from the previous prophecy that his kingdom is eventually going to topple and get picked up by inferior forces and, you know, someone else is going to rule his area. And I think he probably knows that's what's coming. So he doesn't want to hear it. And But just like everything else, eventually we need to hear what the Lord wants us to know. And so Daniel does interpret the dream, but he's troubled by it because he doesn't want to say this to the king. I mean, it says he takes about an hour. This is around verse 19 where he he doesn't want to give the interpretation of the dream because honestly, you guys, it's not good news. And the king just threw his friends in a fire for a smaller thing. So you could see where they would be careful. Remember, Daniel is careful and he he's never he never compromises his integrity, but he is very thoughtful 
about his choices. And I just think there was so much for me to learn from this. If you're going to live in the world and not become like the world, you have to be careful. You have to be temperate. You have to seek guidance from the Lord at every single step. And that's what he's doing. Eventually, the prompting is that he's supposed to tell the king exactly what the dream means. And so he does. He basically says to the king, this is going to happen. Your kingdom's going to get overrun. You are going to have a curse of madness that will come over you. You're going to end up being in the fields and eating the same way animals do. Like It's a pretty severe curse. Like He's going to lose his mind a little bit, and they're going to cast him out of the kingdom for a time. And all of this is going to come to be. But interestingly, there's a delay that happens. I love what you see in verse 27. So after Daniel starts to tell him about what this prophecy or this dream means, he says, Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. I don't think what the king is going to do is going to change the fate of this prophecy. This prophecy will be fulfilled. What he can do is change how it impacts him. Daniel's inviting him to change his future. So he's saying, oh, king, shake off the chains by which you're bound. You can't save your kingdom, but you yourself can be saved if you will take care of the poor, if you will cast off your sins. And don't you love that invitation that the prophets, even in these moments where they have this mighty prophecy about the fate of nations, they still go back to how can I minister to the one? If I just could take care of this person in this room what should I say? And the Spirit says, tell him to shake off his sins, tell him to take care of the poor, and he can have a chance to not have these consequences. But it sure doesn't sound like the king takes it, because 12 months pass without any of these consequences, and he gets pretty comfortable. So in 30, you see that he says, is this not the great Babylon that I have built for the king? Like he, he's kind of patting himself on the back to say, I, this is a pretty impressive city. And if you go on Wikipedia and look up Babylon, like it is an impressive city. It's actually gorgeous. What what we've discovered so far, it's incredible what was built. And he's feeling pretty good. And then he hears a voice fall from heaven that says, this is in 31, the kingdom is departed from thee. It's interesting because the kingdom hasn't fallen yet. In fact, he'll get his kingdom back for a season even after this verse. But his choice to ignore the prophet, to not depart from his sins, to not take care of the poor, means his kingdom is departed. It's tempting to think that that is the kingdom of Babylon. But sometimes I wonder if this is in an eternal kingdom, because Nebuchadnezzar is still going to rule later on in these verses. He'll he'll have his throne back after this period of madness. So maybe this is a, a bigger warning that his chances for repentance are are waning and his kingdom is departing from him. It just had this kind of hunting sound when I read it. Um, so you see this descent into madness. He, the curse is fulfilled. He struggles. And then eventually he gets back on the throne. He sees that Daniel's prophecy about the dream has come to pass. And so again, he praises this God of Daniel and says, you know, take care of these people because their God is a true God. It just doesn't last. You should know when you go into chapter five that you've jumped a couple of generations. So Nebuchadnezzar's reign is over. And now a couple of generations later, you have this new king, Belshazzar. And they'll call Nebuchadnezzar his father, but really that just means ancestor. So they think there's two, I think, generations between them. Um, and this one sounds a little younger and more arrogant. He's having a party in front of thousands and he drinks the wine and says, okay, I want those holy vessels. Remember those sacred things that way back in the book of Numbers, we learned that if somebody touched the holy sacred things without authorization, they died on the spot. <laughs> Remember the steadying of the ark? So this is a similar situation where he's basically daring God 
to punish him. It almost reminded me of Indiana Jones and like the Lost Ark. You know, there there's a cockiness and an arrogance and a greed. Uh, and I think that's all coming to the surface here because he, with all of his friends, they drink wine from these sacred objects and they don't just drink wine. They also worship idols in the process. So it just seems like a really bold affront to what these objects are intended to do. And this king will die like by the end of the chapter. <laughs> it doesn't happen immediately like the steadying of the ark, but it absolutely happens. And I think that's a really good thing to understand up front. So while he's in his merriment, he sees a hand right on the wall. And it's this encoded message. It's an Aramaic, but nobody knows what it means. And so his countenance changes. I thought this was fascinating. So in verse six, it says, then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. Something about seeing this hand right on a wall. I don't know if this is a divine hand. Some of the footnotes link to like either the brother Jared seeing the hand of God. So possibly, um, but he in his wicked state who is doing something horrifically against God, uh, sees the hand of God, but in an ominous way. Remember how we studied this over and over again in the Old Testament, how the God of the Old Testament is a God of mercy and kindness and compassion, but he also will be a God of justice. And this is a time when justice is called for. So he writes this message on the wall and nobody can discern it. And then the queen remembers that there is this guy named Daniel who happens to be wise. In fact, I love her word choice in 12. She says, he is dissolving of doubts. Not only is he has wisdom and he has an excellent spirit and all these other kind of things. I love the phrase and dissolving of doubts. I feel like you could say that about our prophets and apostles that they are men who are able to dissolve my doubt. Even if they don't answer my question specifically, their steadiness in it calms my heart because <laughs> I still have questions that I'm wrestling with and things I'm trying to understand better and layers of revelation that haven't fully unfolded yet. But when I listen to the prophets and apostles speak and the women leaders of the church, I feel my, doubt, my doubts dissolve and my faith swell. So I love that you feel that with Daniel as well. So the king comes to him and says in 14, I have even heard of thee that the spirit of the gods is in thee. Remember, he's old, Daniel's older now, that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. He gives him all these praises. It's interesting to me that knowing the guy like this is in the kingdom, he's never talked to him before. He doesn't know of him specifically. Um, and so he promises him gifts, just like he would any, anyone else who can interpret the dream. But I love Daniel's response. In 17, he says, let thy gifts be to thyself and give thy rewards to another. I will interpret the dream. It's a lot like we saw with Elisha and Naaman. Remember, Naaman wanted to give him all these gifts for healing him of the leprosy. And Elisha says, I, I don't need that from you. I think that tells you a lot about the character of Daniel. I also think it tells you that he knows what this dream means. This dream, what, what you'll see as you watch the rest of the dream play out, or this, I'm sorry, the writing on the wall. When he interprets the writing on the wall, it basically says, your kingdom is over. In fact, by the next day, it's over. And so gifts and lavish things from this king won't matter much. <laughs> but anyway, it's kind of interesting to see how it plays out. So if you go into 20, he reminds him that Nebuchadnezzar, his ancestor, also got in this spot where his pride caused his downfall. So he wants him to know, even though he's going to get destroyed here really quick, he wants everyone in the room to know that it's the pride that got in the way. And he reminds him how that all happens. And then he talks in 23 that he was basically daring God in this moment. Thou hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of this house before thee. You committed a sin you knew was a sin. Remember, we talked about the difference between weakness and rebellion. Weakness 
almost always extended mercy. Rebellion is different, and this is rebellion. So then you have to love what the wall phrase means. So if you look in 25, you can see the actual words that are written on the wall, and then he tells them what they mean. And it means, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. In 27, thou art weighed in the balances, and thou art found wanting. There's this great movie. It's called The Knight's Tale that Jason and I used to watch early in our marriage. And they use this phrase. I had no idea this phrase was in scripture until this week, where they say you've been weighed and you've been measured and you've been found wanting. It's the, there, there are some incredible quotes in the notes about this. Even Joseph Smith himself talks about there will be a time. He, he knows people won't believe him and he wouldn't believe himself either if he were somebody else. But he says, at some point I will be weighed and measured and you will know and I will know. Like it's this certainty he has a certainty about who he is, and this king will not. In fact, if you flip the page, you can see that within one night, that he gives Daniel the gifts, and then in one night, his kingdom is overthrown, and the Persians start coming in. Remember I told you Daniel's a lot like Joseph in Egypt, because Joseph, no matter where he was put, whether it was you know in a prison or in Potiphar's house or by the Pharaoh, he rises to a position of power because of the character that he has. And that's what happens to Daniel as well. Even though now he's probably in his 80s, he's in a position of power. He, the, the area of Persia is divided into these three zones, and he's one of the presidents. In fact, he's the chief president. I don't think, at least from the Institute Manual, it made it sound like, again, this isn't a civic responsibility as much as it is he's over all of those wise men and all the religious leaders of the areas. But this is a big, a big job. And the people who are under him want him out, just like we saw with his friends a few chapters ago. So they set up a trap and they, they know they can't catch Daniel in anything he's actually done wrong. It kind of sounds like what we talked about with the Savior again, where it says in, at the end of four that there was no error found in him, no fault found in him. And they realize that in five, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these other wise men who are envious of Daniel's power say, if we can create a situation where Daniel has to choose between his God and the king, we know Daniel will choose God. I think this tells you a lot about how Daniel must have lived his life around them, that they know exactly where he's going to stand. And so they can actually set up a trap based on that plan. And that's what they do. They set out a decree that the king signs that says, if anyone basically prays to other gods in these 30 days, then they're going to get thrown into a lion's den. And the king signs it. What I think is really cool is what you see in 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did a four time. I love that that verse ends with that phrase because what it tells you is this isn't a big defiant moment for Daniel. He knows the decree has been signed. He knows what the king has threatened and what these other guys are up to. And he's just gonna do what he's always done. He has, he's the same kid he was when he was nine or 10 and just coming to the court of the king. He's going to stand for what he believes. And I love the simplicity of it. There's a great talk from Elder Gong about holy habits and this idea of almost creating a spiritual muscle memory. You know, if you've ever done sports and you do so many drills that I remember doing volleyball serving drills forever. <laughs> and it's critical because when you get into a game, that muscle memory kick, kicks in and you can serve without being afraid. That's basically what Daniel's doing right now. He says, I've always prayed three times a day. There's a lot of scriptures that tell you why he does it this way, but if you go in the notes, you can learn those. But he, this is his holy habit and he's going to continue no matter what the consequences are. And it 
it devastates the king a little bit. It tells you they have a good relationship because in 14, when the king realizes that Daniel's going to need to be thrown into the lion's den because of this decree, he is sorrowing. The king was sore displeased with himself and set his heart to deliver Daniel. So the king is disappointed, not just in the men who trapped him into this situation, but in himself because he was someone who should have been more careful. I think all of us have been in this spot where we maybe lost sight of our stewardship for a time, or we didn't perform in a calling quite like we knew we could have. And then you have these moments where you see the consequences of that lack of diligence kind of slip through your fingers and it's too late. And that's that's where the king is. But I love what the king does. Remember I told you there's lots of experiment upon the words moments in these chapters. There's another one in six, because you see this king who doesn't have a full testimony of the God of the Old Testament. You know, he doesn't know Daniel's God intimately, but he knows Daniel and he knows Daniel serves this God. And so he has a little bit of hope. So he takes Daniel to the lion's den. They have to cast him in. And the king basically says in 16, thy God whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. I don't think the king knows this for certain because we know the next morning he comes worried, but he hopes. There's a great quote in the notes, I think, from uh, there's a BYU devotional where they talk about, we tend to read that that verse from the Book of Mormon that says, if you can no more but desire to believe, if that's, we say it almost like that's a last resort, but that we should see that as enough, that sometimes just a desire to believe is enough to create miracles. And that's what happens here. He desires to believe. He seals the den with his signet so that, you know, they can tell that it's been sealed and Daniel is stuck in there. And then he goes home and he passes the whole night fasting and praying. He doesn't want any entertainment. He There's no sleep that comes to him. And I love this piece because he just has a beginning faith. It's just a fledgling hope, a small desire that this God who Daniel has spoken of, who he's watched Daniel serve, can do what Daniel has promised he can do. And so he hopes. And then he rushes to this den the next morning, opens it up, and then with a lamentable voice calls out. So that's in 20. I think that's important because that means the king didn't fully expect this miracle to play out. He's just done everything he knows to do. He stayed up all night. He fasted. He prayed. He told Daniel that he hopes it will work. And he's done everything he can do. And then he comes with this sorrow in his voice saying, Daniel, are you there? Did your God save you? And Daniel answers. And what you have to love about Daniel is just like he did when he was a young teenager, he doesn't take any credit on his own or say how he pulled something off. He says, my God hath sent his angel and has shut the lion's mouths. That's in verse 22. They have not hurt me for as much as before him, my innocency was found in me. He didn't claim any credit for this victory. He just knows he was innocent before God and therefore was saved in this moment. And the king rejoices. He's exceedingly glad. That's what 23 says. And then he begins to believe. I think this is what you see with President Nelson's invitation to move mountains with our faith. That's what's happening here. Again, I don't think King Darius ever fully converts, but think of the power of this missionary moment when so many people get to witness this miracle happen. And they know that it's because of his belief. In fact, that's what you see in 23. He was not hurt. There was no hurt found upon him because he believed in his God. I love that piece of his story. Even though the king doesn't necessarily fully take on Daniel's God as his own, he says, because he believed in his God, he was saved. That's, I think, why we have to stand in holy places and be not moved. Because those around us, even those who believe in other things, will see those moments and will say, 
there must be something to the God they worship. I think I want to know more. It's this invitation to come and to ask and to find out more for themselves. And then he gives these promises in 25, 26, and 27. He talks about peace be multiplied unto you. He, he talks about Daniel's God, that you should fear and tremble before Daniel's God because he is a living God. He's steadfast forever and his kingdom and his dominion will never have an end. That's a pretty powerful thing to say from a king of a place like Persia. I mean, that's a world dominating king. And he's talking about Daniel's God who will have dominion forever that will never go. What I love is the way he defines a living God. It's a God who delivereth, rescueth, and worketh signs and wonders on heaven and in earth. That's a pretty succinct way to define a living God. I think what you see in all Daniel's life is a living God is someone who gives you temperance in moments when you need patience. He gives you words to say when you need to know how to say them well. He gives you moments where you can walk loose in a fire. Even though he won't pull you out of it, you have moments where you can walk loose and have people on your right hand and on your left, right? That's a living God. He's someone who gives you power to create holy spaces, even in really hard circumstances. And I think it's someone who gives you power to overcome the world because he overcame the world. When you go all the way back to President Nelson's challenge from his October talk, that's what he's inviting us to do, to use our lives to figure out how to overcome this world, how to live in Babylon and not be part of it. And Daniel's life is just this beautiful template. So I hope you enjoy studying him. This will take you all the way through the end of this week's study. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.